Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. This episode is part of a summer book club that I'm hosting on this podcast. In efforts to read and write more on topics related to race and injustice, I decided to log out of my Instagram account for the summer, and I'm instead focusing my time and energy here. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Hi, everyone. For today's episode, I'm taking a short break from the series that I've been doing on Clint Smith's How the Word is Passed, because I want to share with you a quick review on another book that I've recently finished reading, which is called My Vanishing Country by Bakari Sellers. The title of this book, My Vanishing Country, actually comes from the fact that the author grew up in Denmark, South Carolina. So in his introduction of the book, it's titled Black Country and Proud. So to get started, I want to share a little bit about Denmark, South Carolina, as the author describes it. Quote, Denmark is a microcosm of the forgotten Black South, where isolation, lack of economic development, and substandard housing and school systems have devastated it to its core. What I've seen all my life in Denmark helped me to cultivate my political belief that small businesses are the lifeblood of all communities. Whether you look back at Tulsa's wealthy Black Wall Street of the early 20th century or the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s, Black people and Black power always meant being able to have economic self-sustainability and access to the ballot box. However, you can see in poor Black towns today that international industry and a globalized economy have left most of us behind. Denmark is now a place where no one can take for granted things such as clean water, a simple Wi-Fi connection, and a local hospital. End quote. Bakari goes on to talk about how he is a child of the civil rights movement. He goes into explaining a lot about his dad's story and how his dad was very involved in civil rights activism in the 60s. So I'm going to provide a little bit more context so that you can understand his background. Quote, I am a child of the civil rights movement. Why is this so important to me, and why should it be important to all of us? We have to recognize the inequity of authoritarianism and its violent remnants that remain today. People always question whether racism is involved when unarmed African Americans are shot by police. But do we really need researchers to tell us that structural racism is definitely related to police shootings? Public health researchers said people are wrongfully assuming that individual cops are out to get black people. Rather, the problem lies within all of society and how it has treated black people for centuries. This is human nature. Few people will stand up for justice. Even today, too many well-meaning people of all races, genders, and ages 
are at a loss for how to fight back. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Although my father's generation, the Emmett Till generation, speaks through us and lives among us, I believe we still have to carry their torch. There are so many parallels. Just as my father lived for Emmett Till, my task is to live for the people who have died at the hands of the law in my generation. Michael Brown, Terrence Crutcher, Sandra Bland, and so many more. I see them all as martyrs. Their alleged crimes were not death penalty crimes, but still they died. Similar to Emmett Till, these victims were not given the benefit of their humanity. Instead, they were treated as something less than human. As a lawyer, politician, and civil rights activist, I see my life as an extension of my father's journey. In this new era of civil rights in which politicized young activists have a direct impact on the nation's laws and policies, I am a bridge between his work and the achievement of our common goal of racial equity. And yet, 50 years after Cleveland Sellers, my father, a professor, college president, and civil rights activist, was on the front lines of the civil rights struggle, I find myself in a country that looks too much the same. In my time, in our time, some of the most racist remarks come from the very top, where the president himself panders to the worst in us to score points with a particular political demographic, end quote. Typically, if I were to see a memoir of a politician, I wouldn't pick it up or be interested in reading it. But in this case, I guess I resonated with the author in that he doesn't come from the typical politician background that we normally see. He grew up in challenging circumstances and made a platform for himself to give back to the people in the community that raised him. And so one of the big things that's accomplished through this book is to really break down what we mean when we say disenfranchisement. So here's a quote. There's enough research out there to show that people born into poverty often become an heir to it, which means poverty is passed down from one generation to another. African Americans are less likely to rise from this intergenerational transmission of poverty compared with other groups. There are many reasons for this, including unusually high incarceration rates, education inequalities, drugs, segregation, workplace discrimination, and lack of male role models. There's a question I'm often asked. It's a question I dislike, and I am sure many African Americans also dislike it because the very heart of the question dismisses so much important history. The query usually goes like this. You know, all of these immigrant groups come to this country and thrive. Why haven't African Americans been able to break through? The question discounts hundreds of years of slavery, and then years of degradation brought upon us by the oppression of Jim Crow. It dismisses generations of white advantage and pretends we all came here and remain here on the same level as if white privilege is based on merit. For instance, 
many European immigrants who arrived long after African Americans acquired government land for nearly free in order to accelerate the settlement of the West. They were given every opportunity to have their material needs met. Black people, on the other hand, built a nation and broke free from bondage, and yet legal segregation in Denmark ended only in 1972. The question dismisses how the nation's lengthy past of racial inequality has added to an enormous gulf in accumulated fortunes, and with it a disproportionate gap of opportunity. If economic trends continue, black families in the United States will have to wait two centuries to accumulate the same amount of wealth white Americans enjoy today. The average household wealth for white families has grown 85% to 656000 in the past 30 years, according to the Corporation for Enterprise Development and the Institute for Policy Studies, while that of blacks has risen only 27% to 85000 White families have almost 10 times the net worth of black families. Educated white Americans make three times more than their equally educated black counterparts. Now think about Denmark, where nearly everyone is struggling to survive. If these estimates are true, it will take much longer than two centuries for us to catch up. End quote. One of the things that I admire about this author is that he uses his platform to kind of pay it forward. Quote, People often ask me what they can do to help a young person be a leader or go out into the world to create change. And I say, when you're black, the number one thing you can do is to be an example. You can't tell a black kid to be a doctor if he's never seen a black doctor. You can't tell a black kid she can be a lawyer if she's never met a black lawyer. Through examples, we were able to imagine our future selves and then we believed we could achieve those goals, even though we came from the isolated dirt roads of South Carolina, end quote. Bakari shared that the best thing that you can do to help inspire the next generation is to be an example. Though I'm a mental health therapist and I'm primarily working on, you know, your anxiety, depression, life transitions, whatever, I consider it an honor that I get to work with so many young people, especially, you know, adolescents and, you know, college-age students, 20-somethings, because I'm able to not only help with the mental health component, but I get to be a mentor to a lot of these kids, especially over the past year with all of the things that have been going on. The best sessions and the best conversations I've had have been in this past year as I work with, you know, young black men as they process what's going on to people that look like them. And I'm able to be very genuine and honest as a person of color who is also being impacted by these things, who says, yes, I am also struggling with anxiety. I'm also struggling with vicarious trauma to validate But then also I'm able to use my story of how I came from a difficult upbringing and developed anxiety as a result. And after kind of coming to that realization in college, I was able to spend that experience and those traumas into a career that helps other people going through the same thing. 
and it's not to toot my own horn or anything, but it is the most fulfilling job that I can ever imagine myself being in because I'm really seeing lives be transformed. I love what Bakari says about the best way to change the world is to be an example for the next generation. Speaking of anxiety, I'm going to share a few passages from the chapter of the book, which is titled Anxiety, a Black Man's Superpower. Obviously, as a black man who's diagnosed with anxiety, more specifically panic disorder, that uh, chapter title immediately jumped out to me. And normally when I share quotes, I would like give some commentary to add context, but the quotes that I've highlighted in this chapter are just so straightforward to the point and explaining everything that I would comment on anyway. I'm just going to go through this and it speaks for itself. After Al's death, it was a very tough summer. At night, I felt like I was dying. I could barely breathe. My chest hurt. I was having anxiety attacks that felt like a big knot sitting on my chest. This happened every night. Sometimes I cried. Many times I got up and often I didn't sleep through the night. In fact, that summer, I mostly slept during the day. I played basketball and then come home to lie down often beside my mom, who struggled with her own anxiety issues. My parents sent me to physicians, and I was subjected to a full medical workup. I took a stress test where you run on a machine with oxygen and found out I had a heart murmur. But that wasn't the cause of my problems. Next, my parents took me to a psychological therapist who prescribed medication. I was probably one of the youngest people I've known on the antidepressant, Wellbutrin. The adults were trying to check my emotions, but later in life I realized that my issues were likely hereditary. Al's death might have triggered the anxiety, but I probably got it from both parents. I'm almost sure my father suffers from anxiety that he doesn't even know about, and I believe it's linked to his losing so much during the civil rights era. So many of his friends were cut down. He's seen so much violence, experienced so much hate. I tell people my dad's eyes don't pop like they used to because of shedding so many tears, and his shoulders aren't as upright as they once were from carrying the burdens of so many generations. My mother suffers from immobilizing panic attacks. Her hands shake, and sometimes all she wants to do is sleep. When I was a child, she spent many hours and days in bed. She says it's much more than a sense of being overwhelmed. It's scary for a person like me, she tells me, because I am a control freak. In the midst of a panic attack, I don't feel as though I have control. What I do is withdraw until I feel I have control. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised to discover that my mother believes her anxiety is also triggered by the trauma she experienced when my father was sent to prison several years after their marriage. She never used to express this to any of us, but now it all makes sense. These days, my mother is doing better through talking to people and taking medication. And even more important, she recognizes that she has a mental health challenge. Very strong people, very independent people, often don't believe that they have such an illness. They don't believe that they're affecting other people the way that they are. 
When it comes to my anxiety, I stutter because for so long I saw mental health challenges as some form of weakness. I think many black men still do. To this day, for instance, I do not think my father understands my anxiety. For many black males, anxiety is grounded in a sense of self-directed anger and rage because our lives appear to be cyclical. From attending failing schools to suffering from poor health to seeing our loved ones gunned down, we feel like we can never get out of this trap. Many of my brothers have a difficult time expressing this shared frustration because they feel they can't show deep weakness. Black men are not expected to verbalize outside of barbershops and locker rooms that they might need some help. Our own somewhat self-inflicted distortions of manhood, which come from carrying so large a burden, one that is centuries old, projects as an unwillingness to show weakness. And, of course, this often means that our emotions simmer. For some, that leads to bad decisions. I have peers who suffer from the same things I do, but they mask that suffering with women and alcohol. End quote. Those passages that I just read do a great job at explaining a lot of the mental health stigma that exists in the Black community. I also like that the author was vulnerable in sharing that there's a generational pattern of anxiety in his family. I know for me personally, that is very apparent, though no one ever talked about it. And I just think that there there's so much that can be gained from reading his story. So to conclude this review, I want to share one more insight on mental health that the author gave. Quote, Researchers say my generation as a whole, regardless of race or gender, is the most anguished in history. We're certainly at least the most medicated. Like no other generation before us, millennials are afraid of death and failure. We've seen our friends die in senseless wars. We've watched the world we were just getting to know change before our eyes after September 11, 2001. We've seen the world get meaner and colder. We've seen black men shot over and over on the streets by people who are supposed to protect them. We've seen women now naming their traumatic experiences, speaking truth to power and pushing back on a culture that has persecuted them and manipulated their bodies. End quote. So it goes without saying, but I highly recommend checking out the memoir titled my Vanishing Country by Bakari Sellers. For the next episode, I am going to have a special interview with the authors of Blackness Interrupted, Black Psychology Matters. It is a new book that just came out, and it talks about a lot of the significant Black people that have been involved in the field of psychology, psychiatry, and mental health. And it's super important, one, to have a book like this, because I have a collective six years of higher education in the fields of psychology and mental health counseling, yet I never once heard about any person of color that was significant in the foundations of psychology in the field of counseling. So this book 
that we'll be talking about in the next episode is much needed. And I'm so excited for y'all to hear it because I'm able to actually interview the two authors of the book and it's going to be a real treat. So after that episode, I'll pick back up with the review of how the word is passed. But until the next time, uh, thank you for listening and take care. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.